Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating stories about science and technology, stories that touch our lives and change the way we view the universe. Leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is, well, a major scandal is emerging. The World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control have now admitted that they goofed. They goofed last year when they made the main recommendation to fight the coronavirus. They said it's basically droplets. Droplets that emanate from your mouth, for example, when you sneeze. That's the main way the virus spreads. And that is the origin of the six feet rule, because these droplets of liquid fall to the floor after about six feet. And that means you have to wash down everything, scrub everything to make sure that contaminated services are rid of the virus. Oops. Now the CDC and the WHO admit that they neglected the science. Scientists have been saying for a year that no, that's not the way to combat the coronavirus. It's aerosols. It's tiny airborne droplets that you can't even see. That's why the virus is spreading so rapidly. Not by coughing so much, but simply by breathing. These tiny microscopic aerosol droplets spread indoors, and that's the main way it spreads. Not through dirty hands, not by being less than six feet away, not by wearing masks so much even, it's staying out of indoor ventilation systems where airborne droplets can infect an entire group. Also news from outer space. The whole world was mesmerized by the fact that a 22-ton piece of rocket from the Chinese rocket program was tumbling out of control, eventually hitting back the planet Earth. And the people are wondering, why? Why did the Chinese make such a big mistake on national media to have one of their rockets go berserk and land back on the planet Earth? So we'll say a few things about whether or not you can deorbit space junk from outer space. And speaking about outer space, space tourism is heating up dramatically. Not one, not two, not three, but over four groups are offering tickets to go into outer space for the tourist. So what are the pros and cons about that? Is that really safe, given the fact that Elon Musk recently said that going to Mars, somebody will die? And so we'll talk about the pluses and minuses of space tourism and also witnessing the battle of the billionaires. The number one and the number two richest men on the earth are duking it out to see who gets to go to the moon, who gets to build the rockets that'll take us to Mars. And speaking about Mars, DARPA, a branch of the government which sponsors high-tech innovation, is soliciting some proposals to build a nuclear rocket. Now, some people think, well, that was back in the 1950s. That failed. Nuclear rockets never got off the ground. They're too unstable. They're too dangerous. But, well, some people are saying maybe we should use nuclear propulsion systems to go back to outer space and onto Mars. Well, let me also say thank you 
For those people that picked up a copy of my latest book, my latest book is now a New York Times and Amazon bestseller. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. You know, looking back at the multi-thousand-year history of science, you realize that the greatest minds of science have always considered this to be one of their primary goals, to find a single principle, a single paradigm, a single theme that would summarize the vast and rich diversity of everything we see around us. Democritus proposed atoms, but atoms, well, they can't explain the rich variety of things. It just says that things are made out of atoms. But Pythagoras said, no, it's music. Music is rich enough, complex enough, mathematically rigorous enough to explain the diversity of everything we see around us. But, you know, the Roman Empire fell apart, and for a thousand years there was superstition, magic, sorcery, until just recently, in the last few hundred years with the coming of science, we now know that there is something that allows us to unify the laws of nature, the unified field theory. The theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, the God Equation. Well, that's what my book is all about. Find out all about the recent proposals like string theory, which allow one to dream of an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will, quote, allow us to read the mind of God. This would be the culmination of the greatest search in the entire history of science. A single equation from which you can derive all of physics, from which you can derive all of chemistry, from which you can derive all of biology, and maybe even you and me. So find out what the excitement is about. The book, as I said, is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today concerns a scandal a scandal concerning how to fight the coronavirus. You know, when historians write the textbook, the history of our reaction to the coronavirus, they'll mention that our leading organizations botched it. The WHO, the World Health Organization, CDC, the Center for Dissents, the CDC, the, the Center for Disease Control, these are the organizations that were supposed to protect people using the latest scientific evidence. But the WHO and the CDC held on to incorrect ideas even when the science overwhelmingly showed the deficiencies in their position. First of all, from the earliest days, these organizations thought it was large droplets of liquid that was the main carriers of the virus. In other words, when you sneeze, you know that there are large droplets that come out, and most of these droplets fall to the floor in about six feet. And so that's why the CDC and the WHO originally said that social distancing was all that's required. Mask? No, you don't need mask because all the droplets fall to the floor after about six feet. And that means you should spend your time scrubbing the floor uh, sanitizing surfaces where the droplets spread. That's the main way to fight the virus. Wrong. A few months after that, the CDC and the WHO said, well, no, you need masks as well. Now, originally they were against masks, 
because masks, they said, should only be given to the frontline workers in the hospitals who are daily exposed to the virus. They need the mask, not you. And most of the droplets fall to the floor after six feet, so you don't need a mask. Well, CDC and WHO then reversed themselves on that. But then, but then for the next eight months, they clung to this idea that aerosol particles, particles that are too small to even be seen, is not the main way the virus spreads. However, at MIT, Stanford, many of the top research institutions, scientists, they were beginning to grumble and say, wait a minute, it is aerosols. In other words, think of perfume. If you walk into a room and you spray perfume, how far does the perfume spread? Well, yeah, a lot of it is in the form of droplets. They will fall to the floor in about six feet. But aerosolized particles, airborne particles, they can float for many, many feet and fill up an entire room. That's the way the virus spreads, said these scientists. But the bureaucrats at the WHO and the CDC clung to this earlier idea. Now, this is not academic because it affects policy. Take a look at India now. The Indian government is still spending millions of dollars washing down surfaces, trying to combat the virus the old-fashioned way, that is, with large droplets of liquid. But that's not how the virus mainly spreads. It spreads indoors because of poor ventilation. In other words, we should not be spending millions of dollars washing down park benches and surfaces. We should be spending millions of dollars revamping indoor ventilation systems and encouraging people not to talk to other people more than, let's say, 15 minutes or so, because it is talking. It is talking that's one of the main ways that the virus spreads. So in other words, because of this incorrect thinking, that dominated uh, the CDC and the WHO for over eight months, it meant that incorrect procedures were done. People were allowed to go indoors as long as they obeyed social distancing, as long as they wore masks. They were not encouraged to go outside. They were not encouraged to keep talking down to a minimum, like 15 minutes or so at maximum. No, they were talking about washing your hands, scrubbing down surfaces, social distancing, and wearing masks. Well, when the history of the virus is finally written, I think we'll realize that the bureaucrats got it all wrong. They should have listened to the scientists. The scientists did studies showing that it was airborne. Airborne droplets that you can't even see. Microscopic airborne droplets that can that can go through the wind, infect the entire indoor population for hours at a time. That's why you should minimize the amount of time you spend talking to somebody. If you meet someone outdoors, no more than 15 minutes. If you meet someone indoors, for God's sake, these aerosolized particles can stay airborne for hours at a time. In other words, if at all possible, don't stay indoors at all. Or if you are indoors, make sure that there's adequate circulation of the air because that is one of the main ways in which the virus spreads. Not through dirty hands, but through indoor improper ventilation. 
Stay out of indoor enclosures if at all possible. And of course, get vaccinated. As I mentioned on this program, we now have the results of millions of people that have been vaccinated. These vaccines are 94 to 95 percent effective. And even for those individuals that do come down positive with the virus, the virus is mild and the death rate is practically invisible. Yes, there are some mishaps with the virus. There are side effects. But think of the millions of people who benefited from the vaccine. Also, let me say a few things about outer space. The world is mesmerized by the fact that a huge, gigantic Chinese rocket was tumbling uncontrollably in outer space and would, of course, eventually hit the Earth. How big was it? It was 100 feet across. That is even longer than an 18-wheel truck. In other words, you're talking about something that's really big, weighing 22 tons, or approximately the weight of 22 cars. And it was traveling at 18,000 miles per hour. That is 25 times the speed of sound. Now, to be fair, no one is saying the sky is falling like Chicken Little. We are saying that for the most part, space debris lands in the ocean. When they do land on the Earth, they usually land in unpopulated areas. But just remember that this is not the first time this year that we've had an uncontrolled landing of a piece of Chinese space debris. Just last year, May of last year, another Long March Chinese rocket went out of control and landed back on the planet Earth, this time in the Atlantic Ocean and also parts of the Ivory Coast in Africa. We should also mention that the last time we had an incident like this was 30 years ago. In other words, 30 years ago, the United States and Russia realized that it was a hazard to have their satellites and rockets come back down. So they tried to make sure they deorbit them. When you launch a rocket, you want to make sure that the booster rockets have extra propulsion so they land harmlessly in the ocean rather than circulating around the world, causing mass panic and landing perhaps on someone's backyard. And just remember that 30 years ago, the great powers really didn't care that much about space debris. In fact, think of Skylab. The year was 1979. A 76-ton space station called Skylab was about to deorbit, was about to plunge into the atmosphere. And I still remember Las Vegas bet makers and bookmakers, they were taking bets. They were taking bets as to where Skylab would eventually fall. Well, it eventually fell in the Pacific, but also in Australia as well. And then a few years before that, in 1977, we had the infamous Cosmos 954. What was on board? A nuclear reactor. That's right. People forget the fact that in the old days, at the height of the Cold War, the United States and Russia would send nuclear reactors into outer space. Well, Cosmos 954 was barreling out of control. It slammed into Canada, northern Canada. It contained uranium, highly enriched U-235 uranium, which was then spewed out over the tundra of Canada. We should also point out that the contamination from this uranium 
spread out over several hundred square miles of Canadian real estate. And it caused a tremendous embarrassment for Russia. In fact, the Chinese government billed the Russians for the cleanup operation because you have to clean up all this radioactive fuel that was spilled over the tundra of northern Canada. So in other words, at the height of the Cold War, the great powers would regularly allow their missiles and booster rockets to burn up uncontrollably in the atmosphere because most of the time, well, let's be frank, most of the time these pieces of space debris landed in the ocean. But once in a while, they've also landed on people's backyard. Now, we should also point out that this is one of the problems of the space age. Everybody's concerned about what goes up. Nobody's concerned about what comes back down. Right now, there are roughly 6,000, 6,000 satellites orbiting the Earth. Over half of them are defunct and not operational. But yeah, about 6,000 satellites and even more pieces of space debris in orbit around the planet Earth. And all of them, all of them will eventually deorbit. All of them will eventually skim over the atmosphere of the Earth, lose altitude, and become like a meteor, a flaming meteor in the sky. In fact, on average, 150 tons of space debris burn up in the atmosphere every year. Let me repeat that. Every year, about 150 tons of space debris burns up in the atmosphere. So that's one of the prices we pay for the space program. Now, then the next question is, why did the Chinese allow not one, but two, two of their booster rockets to go out of control, make damaging headlines, and have these objects fall back on the planet Earth in an uncontrolled reentry? Well, just remember that 30 years ago, the great powers said that they're not going to do that anymore. They're going to make sure that these objects fall safely in the ocean if they may weigh more than 10 tons. Well, this Chinese satellite weighs 22 tons. So why did the Chinese allow this to happen? It's like a throwback to the days of the Cold War. Well, realize that the Chinese space program is to play catch-up, catch-up to the West, and they are methodically repeating the steps of the Russian and the American space program, test by test, step by step, they are retrieving the steps taken, proven steps taken by the United States and the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. And so that's why the Chinese are in a rush. The Chinese are in a rush to catch up to the great powers, and that's why they're cutting corners. And that's why I think they were rather sloppy and allowed these two mishaps to happen one right after the other. Well, speaking about outer space, we should also point out that space tourism is in the news. The richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, is now auctioning off tickets. Tickets where the average person, if they win the bid, can go into outer space. And so there's a, there's a traffic jam that we're going to see in outer space as not one, not two, not three, but at least four organizations are offering tickets for, well, mom and dad to go into outer space. First, there's Blue Origin, which has the Blue Origin Shepherd rocket. It simply goes up about 60 miles into 
uh, the atmosphere comes back down again. The whole trip lasts more than about 10 minutes, but you do experience weightlessness and you are at the edge of the atmosphere. So that's the Blue Origin rocket and it's had several successes, unmanned successes with the Shepard rocket. Then there's Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic spun off from um, Richard Branson of Virgin Atlantic. It's had a few mishaps, unfortunately, but it is also gearing up to sell tickets maybe sometime this year, next year for tourists. So just go to the internet, type in Blue Origin, and you can find out what it takes for you to bid to be a passenger on the Shepard rocket to blast off into the edge of outer space. And then we have Virgin Galactic, uh, sponsored by Richard Branson, the creator of Virgin Atlantic. Unfortunately, there's been a number of mishaps with their rocket program, so it's behind schedule. But they, too, think that, well, next year, this year, sometime soon, they're going to be offering tickets to go to the edge of space. How much does it cost? Well, we don't know, but it's said that 200000 to 250000 may buy you a ticket to go into outer space. And then there's SpaceX and the Russians. They're going to take you not to the edge of space. They're going to go all the way to the International Space Station. That's right. Elon Musk of SpaceX has racked up a series of tremendously successful ventures to the space station, and they will be offering tickets for, well, the average person that fits a certain set of physical criteria to go not just to the edge of space, but all the way up to the International Space Station. How much? Well, we don't know, but it's rumored that it's probably over 20 million to not just go to the edge of space, but to go all the way to the International Space Station. And then, of course, we have the Russians themselves. The Russians would sell tickets for American astronauts, so we would piggyback on the Russian program. But now that we have SpaceX, we don't necessarily need to depend upon the Russians so much. And so the Russians are seriously looking at space tourism. They've done it before. They've taken uh, one billionaire from Microsoft and set him into outer space. In fact, I actually interviewed him for exploration. A civilian who went to the International Space Station. I asked him, by the way, how much it cost for the ticket. He was a little bit coy about that. He wouldn't give me a number. But I said that the press was saying $20 million, And he said that, well, that's in the ballpark. And so this is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the average Joe. If you have 200,000 cash laying around, you can go to the edge of space. And if you have 20 million, then you can go all the way to the International Space Station. And then we also have the battle of the billionaires. The richest man in the world is Jeff Bezos of Amazon and also Blue Origin Rocket Program. But the second richest man in the world is Elon Musk of SpaceX, who's racked up a series of successful launches to the International Space Station. He's already made the history books. When the history of space travel is written, he will have a chapter. He's been pioneering reusable rockets, which by themselves will reduce the cost of space travel. 
He's been pioneering going to Mars. In fact, his Starship rocket is actually a Mars rocket. And also, he's opened up a new era in space travel by reducing the cost of space travel from $10,000 a pound to perhaps half that or even a fraction of that. And that, of course, opens up the heavens for commerce if the cost of space travel drops like it is dropping now. But we should also point out that Elon Musk is a realist. He realizes that, yes, after all the fanfare is over, some people will die going to Mars. And why is that? Because the failure rate of booster rockets is about 1%. We're 60 years into the space age, and we still have not been able to get down the failure rate uh, below 1%. We've had 200 space shuttle missions, of which two blew up, killing 14 brave astronauts. That is a 1% average record. And we have not been able to get it below 1%. So if you want to go to Mars, if you want to go into outer space, just realize that it's not a Sunday picnic. That is, there's a certain amount of risk that you take because of that fact. Now, because of all this activity in outer space, we have to realize that not all of it is for strictly civilian purposes. DARPA, a branch of the Pentagon, is offering contracts now for a nuclear rocket. A rocket that uses a nuclear reactor for propulsion. It claims that it could cut the time necessary to go to Mars, but some people are nervous and saying, well, if you have a nuclear rocket, can you use that also for warfare? And that's why some people are saying with all this activity, we should have a new version of the Outer Space Treaty. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 almost looks like a dinosaur today, but hey, it held a peace. It said basically two things. First, no nuclear weapons in outer space. And two, no government should own a celestial body like the moon. Well, today these seem so quaint because weapons in space do not have to be nuclear. You don't need a nuclear bomb to create havoc with killer satellites to initiate a nuclear war. Plus the fact that now even private billionaires like Elon Musk essentially have enough cash on hand to land his own astronauts on the moon, put a flag, and perhaps claim a celestial body. He's not a government, and so the Outer Space Treaty, you can see, is woefully obsolete and out of date. So some people are saying that with all this activity in outer space, we need some ground rules. We want to make sure that things don't necessarily spin out of control, and that's why I think a good idea is to re-examine, re-examine the old Outer Space Treaty of 1967, because back then there were only two players, the United States and Russia. Now there's a whole, there's a whole room full of players, uh, even the United Arab Emirates, a small little nation in the Middle East, successfully, successfully sent a mission to Mars. And so it's a whole new ballgame. And some people are saying that we need a whole new treaty.
Well, I'm afraid that ends the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of space by talking to Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute. And his job is to, well, contact aliens from outer space. So we'll be talking about aliens in space in the second half of exploration. And again, if you want to find out more about my new book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, then go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And there's a whole discussion there about what does it mean to have a theory, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God in the words of Albert Einstein. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the first part of Exploration, we summarize some of the main things happening in outer space. Well, in the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about physicists who actually want to make contact, contact with alien civilizations in outer space. Our special guest today is Dr. Seth Shostak, director of the SETI Project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. You know, when I talk to my fellow physicists about life in outer space and the possibility of alien visitation, I get the giggle factor. They giggle, their eyes roll up to the heavens, they shake their head, and they say, bah, humbug. The distances between the stars is so great. There's no way an alien civilization can go from one star to the next. It would take thousands of years. But you see, that assumes that the aliens are just a few hundred years more advanced than us. And of course, if they're that primitive, then they're not going to be able to go across the galaxy in a blink of an eye. But let's say, let's say for the moment that they have a technology thousands, millions of years more advanced than us, then new laws of physics begin to emerge. You see, Einstein's theory breaks down at what is called the Planck energy the energy where quantum corrections take over. And that means you have to have a quantum theory of gravity. And that's where string theory comes in, which is what I do for a living. Uh, New York City pays my salary so that I can do research on Einstein's unified theory. And we think that the leading and only candidate for such a fable theory is string theory. And string theory has the promise of being able to answer these questions. Can you go faster than the speed of light? Is there a white hole on the other end of a black hole? Are there gateways to other universes? Are there wormholes? Are there higher dimensions? Is there a multiverse of universes? What happened before the Big Bang? You know, none of these ideas can be tested or talked about rationally because Einstein's theory breaks down at the Planck energy. And that's where we need string theory. 
String theory lives in the quantum energy. It lives in the Planck energy, the realm at which quantum corrections dominate Einstein's theory of general relativity. And yes, string theory does entertain the possibility of things like time travel, higher dimensions, parallel universes, a multiverse, but the main thing is how stable. How stable are these devices for quantum corrections? And that's what we have to develop and perfect string theory. We have the theory, but we don't yet have it in a form where we can answer these questions once and for all. And maybe one of you people in the audience listening to this program will be inspired and decide that they want to finish this God equation. Well, if you ever find the God equation, what should you do? Let me give you a word of advice. You should tell me first. And then, of course, we'll publish together, and then we'll split the Nobel Prize together, you and me. Well, once again, our special guest today in the second half of exploration is Dr. Seth Stosak, with a PhD in physics, like myself, but instead of chasing students and grading final exams, he is chasing alien civilizations with the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, Dr. Shostak, you spent your whole life looking for alien civilizations in outer space, but let's face it, the universe is huge. So, how do you find the aliens in such a gigantic universe? The universe is so big, and just in our own neighborhood, we have discovered 4,000, 4,000 planets going around stars next to us in our quadrant of the Milky Way galaxy. And so the first question for you, Dr. Shostak, is how do you find the aliens? Well, that's actually a good point because, of course, you know, the aliens haven't sent us a fax telling us where on the dial they might be broadcasting. So you have to sort of second guess what, what frequencies, what part of the dial makes sense. And uh, that idea had already been explored, even though Frank Drake didn't know that, by a couple of guys who at that point were at Cornell University, a couple of physicists by, by the name of uh, Giacconi and, uh, sorry, Cocconi, Giuseppe Cocconi and uh, Philip Morrison. Anyhow, these two guys had already thought about what frequencies make sense if you're going to send messages between the stars. And they said, well, look, there's kind of a natural uh, answer to that because there's one frequency everybody will know, and it turns out to be 1420 megahertz on the dial. You might think, well, what's special about that? It turns out that hydrogen, which is by far the, the overwhelmingly most common element in the, uh, in the universe, hydrogen naturally emits some radio emission at 1420 megahertz. So all astronomers, you know, of any sophistication in the universe will know about this frequency. So they said, look, that's a natural frequency. Everybody will have it marked on their radio dial. Let's try listening there. Frank Drake came to the same conclusion rather independently. And so the first experiments were done usually with a, with a receiver that only had one channel. It could only listen to one channel at a time, just like your auto radio, um, and, and, and set that frequency somewhere near this 1420 megahertz magic frequency on the dial. Now, as time went on, this kind of experiment became much more sophisticated. Today, uh, the receivers that are used for SETI listen simultaneously to tens of millions of channels at once because, you know, you don't know exactly which, which frequency might be the one they're using, but they tend to look at still at that part of the dial around 1420 megahertz. Not always. Sometimes they'll do experiments where they're looking elsewhere, but usually you're covering 
uh, maybe 1,000 or 2,000 megahertz around that frequency. So, you know, it's a small fraction of the dial, but it seems to be a pretty good one. Nobody, no one's ever come up with a better argument about where to tune. Okay, now let's talk about Drake's equation, which is taught in every elementary astronomy course as scientists try to get a reasonable scientific estimate of the probability of intelligent races throughout the, the galaxy. So tell us a little bit about uh, Drake's equation. Well, the equation actually has an interesting history, or at least semi-interesting. <laughs> Frank Drake had done that first listening experiment in the spring of 1960. So, gosh, that's 45 years ago. It was in April, I think, 1960. Anyhow, so th that generated a lot of interest. I mean, he didn't find the aliens, but it generated a heck of a lot of interest. And so the next year, he had a meeting, also in West Virginia, at the observatory, uh, in which he invited all the kind of professional scientists who who were interested in this work. That, that, that total was like 10 or 12 or something. It was mm -hmm. a fairly small number. And as an agenda, he was, you know, he's sitting around thinking, well, this meeting's come up, coming up in a couple of weeks. I need an agenda. So as an agenda for this meeting, he wrote down this very simple equation, which has subsequently become known as the Drake equation. And all it does is try to estimate something called N, where N is the number of, uh, number of civilizations in our galaxy, just let's confine ourselves to our galaxy, that are broadcasting right now. So the, the number of, of star systems, if you will, that are producing signals now that we could detect. Now, clearly, that depends on, well, how many stars are there in the galaxy and what fraction of those have planets and what fraction of those planets have produced life and what fraction of those that have produced life have produced intelligent life and what fraction of those have produced technology and what fraction of those. Those are actually on the air right now. Okay, so it's a whole string of terms. There are actually seven terms in the equation. You can find it in almost any textbook on, uh, on astronomy. And that's the Drake equation. And it, it would be great because it would tell you, you know, what are your chances of success? I mean, if N is only a few, then the chances that you'll find these guys is pretty small. But if N are thousands or millions or some very large number, uh, Carl Sagan thought that the value of N was several million. Well, if that's true, then, you know, you have a pretty good chance of tripping across the signal sooner or later. So, unfortunately, of course, we don't know what N is. There are a bunch of terms in the equation that we simply don't know. So it's more of a, a talking point kind of thing than it is an equation that you can actually solve or use. Other scientists say bah humbug. Uh, we had uh, Professor Brownlee on our airwaves um, about a year and a half ago. And he said that Drake's equation is flawed. Flawed because there are new astronomical bits of information that show that, well, uh, to get life is more difficult than we thought. Uh, he mentions, for example, that you need a large moon. Uh, without a large moon, the Earth would eventually tumble in its orbit and uh, over hundreds of millions of years, and that would make DNA impossible. Uh, he also mentioned the fact that at one point the entire Earth was frozen over. We were snowball Earth. And again, DNA would be very hard to get off the ground under those circumstances. Uh, he mentions you have to have a large Jupiter in order to clean out the debris of the solar system. He also mentions you have to be a certain distance from the center of the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Otherwise, you get fried by being too close to this very radioactive core at the center of the galaxy. But if you're too far out, uh, then there are not enough heavy elements uh, to create uh, DNA and uh, higher molecules. So, well, what are your thoughts? Is the Earth, in some sense, unique, as uh, Professor Brownlee was hinting at? Or do you think uh, N is quite large, as Carl Sagan believed? 
Well, of course, nobody knows, so everything I'm going to tell you is my opinion on this, okay. obviously. Good enough. If we, if we knew the answer, we wouldn't be discussing it, but um, it's true. Don Brownlee and uh, his colleague Peter Ward at the University of Washington up in Seattle wrote this book about five years ago called Rare Earth, in which they had indeed, as you indicated, kind of a laundry list of uh, you know reasons why Earth might not be just a run-of-the-mill planet. Earth might be very, very special, so special that, in fact, Although there might be some other life out there, it's not going to be very sophisticated life. It isn't going to be intelligent life. And so our SETI experiments are kind of a waste of time. That, that was their thesis. And since this was reviewed, by the way, in the New York Times, uh, this book got a lot of play. And, uh, but if you actually look at this laundry list, you find that the items on it are not terribly convincing. Uh, let, let's take a couple of the ones you named, for example. The fact that the Earth has a large moon, which kind of stabilizes the spin of the Earth. Okay. Now, if we didn't have that large moon, and by the way, a large moon is kind of a rare thing. You, you know, Mercury doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Venus doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Mars has a couple of moons you could walk around in an afternoon. Tiny moons, they don't help. Earth, on the other hand, among the rocky planets, is the only one to have a, have a large moon. Okay. And sure, it does stabilize the Earth's spin. But if you took that moon away, uh, yes, well, the Earth wouldn't, you know, just go completely nuts. Every now and again, the North Pole would come down to, you know, Connecticut or some other place, that mm-hmm. thing. But it would take hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years to do that, right? So it's such a slow event that even, you know, for, even for complicated life like freshwater otters or whatever, right, they, they can just walk away from that problem. If you've got 100,000 years, to, you know, before the North Pole gets to you, you have plenty of time to move. I mean, that isn't fatal to life. That's not fatal. It might be an inconvenience, you know, if you had a society with a lot of cities, you might not want it to happen. But it's so slow. It's not fatal. Now, uh, here's another another thing in your list there. You mentioned we're fortunate to have Jupiter because Jupiter has cleaned out the inner solar system of all these big rocks that otherwise might, you know, slam into your planet and ruin the whole day just the way it happened 65 million years ago, taking out the dinosaurs and 75% of all other species. Well, sure. Uh, but on the other hand, big Jupiters are not rare. We know that. In fact, all the planets we've found around other stars are like Jupiter are bigger. Right? So big planets are not rare. But even even aside from that, you could argue that maybe life on Earth would have gotten a little bit farther had we not had such a big planet as Jupiter out there, because, in fact, you know, if the dinos had been wiped out 50 million years earlier, we would be 50 million years ahead of where we are today. We'd have the cure for death, whatever, you know. It would be, maybe we'd be better off. So I don't find that a very convincing argument. I mean, you, you can look at each one of these arguments. Uh, the snowball Earth, yes, there's some evidence, although it's, it's somewhat controversial, but there's some evidence that there was a time a few billion years ago when the entire Earth was encrusted with ice. But there was life on Earth then. And that life wasn't wiped out by snowball Earth. It just, you know, had to sit there and, you know, live at the bottom of the oceans for a while. But, you know, a lot of life, well, all life was down in the oceans anyhow. So, you know, it didn't wipe out Earth. It wasn't fatal. Okay, so all these things, yes, they might be an inconvenience or they might not be. But in any case, none of them stopped life on Earth. None of them stopped life on Earth. So I, I really don't think that Earth is really all that special. Well, uh, Professor Brownlee goes on, in fact, on and on and on, as I found <laughs> out interviewing him. Uh, he also says that uh, microbial life could, in fact, be quite common throughout the universe, but intelligent life, well, take a look at the dinosaurs, he says. Uh, you know, we've had life forms with uh, spinal cords and uh, nervous systems for hundreds of millions of years on the Earth, but humans only humans on the Earth, even on the Earth with such ideal conditions, it took hundreds of millions of years for that for humans to get off the ground. And even then, 
there were many times when humanity may have been wiped out. There were only a few thousand of us, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago to create the entire human race. The human race could have been wiped out many times uh, during certain bottlenecks in our evolution. So he was basically saying that intelligent life is extremely rare, even if you have microbial life being common. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, he's right in that this is a controversial area. Uh, I think even more controversial than, than the, the question of whether you can get complex life on a lot of planets. I don't think that's so con- controversial myself. But just because I give you a million planets with life, right, and you let them cook for a few billion years, there is a legitimate question. What fraction of them will ever cook up something as clever as, you know, as we are? <laughs> and, and we are clever compared to the most critters around, right? Um, that's debatable, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, but in any case, I mean, you know, we don't know because we don't, we still don't understand fully how, or even partially really, how intelligence uh, evolved on Earth. What was it that, that produced intelligence on Earth? If it's uh, a mechanism that was just very rare in the sense of being accidental or contingent upon a lot of special circumstances, then maybe he's right. Maybe you got lots and lots of life out there. Maybe Captain Kirk takes the Starship Enterprise out into space and finds lots and lots of life in the galaxy, mm-hmm. but it's all stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's one possibility. But on the other hand, all the uh, studies that have been done about how intelligence arose on Earth suggest that, well, what drove it was nothing that you wouldn't expect elsewhere. And sure, it took a long time before you got this far, but you needed some, some preconditions. You needed warm-blooded animals with a high metabolic rate. You know, you, need, you needed all sorts of, of uh, sort of biological developments, and then in the last 50 million years, which, of course, is fairly short in the history of the planet, but in the last 50 million years, a lot of species have gotten smarter. Uh, it's it, you know, obviously Homo sapiens, but, you know, and, and obviously our simian relatives, right? Chimps are pretty clever. But, you know, birds are pretty clever. Uh, even, even octopi are fairly clever. Uh, whales and dolphins are fairly clever. There, there's been a, an increase in intelligence among, you know, a handful, a couple of handfuls of species in the past 50 million years. It isn't just one species that got smarter. Now, we got smarter than they did, but if you, you know, if you were to visit Earth two million years ago, uh, you would have found that the smartest things on the planet were not our simian ancestors, but some white flanked dolphins. They had the highest IQs, and uh, they didn't leave a lot of literature, but you know, they, they were the smartest things around. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does seem that intelligence is actually kind of a, a fairly natural product of evolution once you get to a certain level of complexity. This, this is controversial, but at least the indications are that intelligence is not some sort of miracle. Okay. Well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we also had uh, Professor Dan Wertheimer from the University of California at Berkeley on our airwaves a few years ago talking about SETI at home. That is, on your home PC, you can get a chunk, a chunk of this radio data and have your PC via its screensaver uh, basically crunch some of the numbers to look for intelligent signals. Uh, What's been the progress uh, for SETI at home in the last several years? Well, SETI at Home was intended originally just to be a very short-lived project, maybe for a year or two. But it was so popular that it's, it's continued. They expected, you know, maybe 50,000 people, maybe 50,000 people, would download this free bit of software so that when they walk away from their computer, you know, it's still humming away, that it would, it would uh, process a certain amount of SETI data that it would download from the, uh, the servers at the University of California at Berkeley. Well, more than 5 million people have downloaded that software, mm-hmm. so... So that's, uh, you know, that's 100 times as many as they expected, and about a third of them use it at any given time. What they do is they distribute a little bit of the data they collect from the radio telescope down in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo radio telescope, which a lot of, a lot of listeners may have seen in the movie Contact, 
movie Goldeneye. You know, it's a, it's a great movie star. Yeah, they they distribute about one or two percent of the data they collect there on the the web for people using the screensaver. But the point is that there are so many people doing this with their home computers that it is by far the largest computer project, of, the largest computer, if you will, in the world right now. And those data are looked at extraordinarily carefully. So, you know, it's really a very, very fine-tooth comb. They look at all the rest of their data right there at Berkeley using, you know, the local Berkeley computers, but they can't look as carefully as they can at this small fraction of the data, which, you know, are the prime data, if you will. Now, has anybody found something? Well, people find stuff all the time, of course. Uh, if you do these sorts of work, uh, this sort of work and you're using a big antenna like the one in Puerto Rico, you find signals all the time. After all, you've got this huge antenna. It's collect, connected to a, a receiver that has millions of channels. Of course you pick up signals. But, of course, the question is, is that ET on the line or is that AT&T on the line? Is it just interference from a telecommunications satellite or something like that? Now, what the guys at Berkeley do is they, they look at all the signals that have been found by people using their computers at home. And they, they look for those cases where a signal has been found more than once, in fact, more than twice. If a signal has been found three different times, right, not just by three different people, that doesn't count, but by, you know, at, at three different times. In other words, the telescope was pointing at some spot on the sky and they find a signal. And then, you know, three months later comes back to that same point. And somebody else finds it again at that same frequency, at that same spot on the sky. If that, if that happens three or more times, then they say, hey, look, that's, you know, kind of interesting from a statistical point of view. That suggests it's not just a noise spike. That, you know, looks like a real signal. And then they will go down to the telescope and will deliberately look at that spot on the sky for a long period of time, for a few minutes, whatever it takes, until they can verify whether the signal is still there. They have done that on several occasions. So far, no dice. But on the other hand, it is quite possible that somebody running SETI at home could, in fact, find the signal that would entitle them to pick up a prize in Stockholm and have uh, dinner with the king. And that, of course, would be perhaps one of the pivotal events in uh, human evolution on the planet Earth. I think so. Well, let me ask you now the $64,000 question. What do you, as an individual, think N is, N being the number of intelligent uh, uh, planetary systems out there, and where are they? Yes, well... <laughs> Of course, I don't know what N is either, but um, I, I tend to agree with Frank Drake, who still works here at the SETI Institute. His office is down the hall from mine. And uh, you know, Frank is now, I guess he'll be 75 in another month or so. But he's still as active as he ever was. And uh, he's a pretty smart guy, one of the cleverest guys I've, I've, I've known. And if you ask Frank, look, um, you know, this is your equation. What do you think N is? He'll say, well, I think it's probably around 10,000, which is kind of, a conservative number compared to Carl Sagan, who thought it was a few million. I think Isaac Asimov thought it was uh, two-thirds of a million. You know, So Car uh, Frank is saying about 10,000. Well, if it's anywhere between 1,000 and, well, some bigger number, if it's more than 1,000, then that means that the nearest aliens are within, on the order of 1,000 light years, okay, to us. Now, keep in mind that if you look at the whole Milky Way galaxy, it's about 100,000 light years across. So this is you know, only like 1% of the way across the galaxy. Thousand light years. That's far if you're trying to drive it in your Honda, but it isn't so far for a radio telescope. If that's the case, and and it really is, you know, it, it, it's up for grabs. Obviously, we don't know. But if if that's the case, then our experiments should find a signal within the next 20 years, because within the next 20 years, we will have kind of searched stars out to that distance. So uh, that's my bet. 
But on the other hand, we're not going to know the answer until we know the answer. And what are your thoughts about, well, where are they? Uh, SETI so far has picked up nothing. Is that just a question of lack of sensitivity of the SETI antennas, lack of detectors, or is it because they're shy out there in outer space, or maybe they don't exist? Or, well, what are your thoughts about uh, why we haven't picked up any messages yet? Yeah, well, this, this, you know, I think that the answer is very simple. I think it's simply because we've, we've, we've not combed enough uh, galactic real estate yet. Uh, but, you know, there are people who say, no, 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 the fact that you haven't heard anything yet means something. It means that they're not out there because any society that was more advanced than ours, and, and most of them are going to be more advanced than ours. I mean, if intelligence really does occur on planets in, in, in a fashion that's not extraordinarily rare, then most of the societies out there will be much older than ours because, after all, you know, we're the new kids on the block. The Earth has only been here for four and a half billion years. The, the galaxy has been around for like three times that length of time. So most of the stars out there are older than the sun. So if they're really advanced, then they should have been able by now to maybe colonize big chunks of the galaxy. Who knows? They should have been able to spread around. They should have, you know, remote transmitters. They should be very easy to find. And the fact that we haven't found them uh, sounds like some sort of paradox. In fact, this, this little argument is often called the Fermi paradox because Enrico Fermi, uh, the, the physicist, the Italian-American physicist, was the first to point this out over a lunch at, uh, I think it was Los Alamos in 1950. But in any case, uh, that's his argument. I don't think I buy into that. I don't think it's a matter of them being shy, being coy. Maybe some of them are shy. Maybe most of them are shy. But if only one society has a powerful transmitter out there, then, then we have a chance of success. I think the reason we haven't found them yet is that we haven't looked very carefully. And all of that is going to change in the next few decades, mostly because of the march of technology. Well, my personal point of view is that if there's an anthill in the country and you're walking down this country road and you bump into this anthill, uh, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I bring you nuclear energy and DNA technology, or perhaps maybe you step on a few of them? Yeah, probably. I, you know, I get phone calls uh, just about every other day from people who have their own explanation of why we haven't heard anything, and it's usually because the aliens are put off by our environmental degradation and our, you know, threatening one another with war and all that sort of stuff. But indeed, I think that from their point of view, none of that matters terribly much any more than whatever wars the ants are getting into concern me. They don't. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, another stream of thought says that we're looking in the wrong place. Uh, for example, take a look at email. Email is compressed. Email is broken up and goes through many cities and then recombined at the other end. So if an alien civilization had even a primitive, even a primitive email system and we were eavesdropping on it, we wouldn't hear much at all. Uh, the signals would be compressed in a way that we don't understand. They'd be fragmented and redistributed and reassembled someplace else in a code we don't understand. So we could be listening in to messages that are teeming with intelligent uh, uh, things in it, but we are simply too primitive to understand it. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. I don't expect that we are going to understand any of the messages, even to the point of being able to sort of break them up into the bits that uh, they, you know, that, that make them up. And it, it's also true that, you know, there are all sorts of methods for encoding information, for sending bits around that uh, are fairly sophisticated that, that we use. For example, your cell phone tends to use what is called spread spectrum technology, where the signal is spread all over the dial instead of being concentrated in one spot. That's very hard to find. 
with a radio receiver unless you know all the details of their communications uh, schemes. So, yeah, there are lots and lots of ways they can make the signal hard to find. But in the end, it comes down to this. If they have a transmitter on, that puts a certain amount of energy somewhere in the radio dial, somewhere in the radio spectrum. And we don't worry about how it's encoded or what the message is or anything like that. We don't worry about the message when we do our SETI experiments. We're just trying to determine, is a transmitter on? We're looking for narrowband components to the signal, it's called. A little, you know, lots of excess energy, if you will, at certain spots on the radio dial. If we find that, we, of course, don't know what they're saying, whether it's something profound or whether it's something trivial like used car ads. We don't care about any of that. We're simply looking for evidence that their transmitters are on because, after all, that, that's the proof that we're after. Okay. Now let's talk about flying saucers. Uh, of course, the distances between stars are enormous. Uh, it would take the Voyager spacecraft thousands and thousands of years to reach the nearest star. But that's because, you know, we're kind of primitive on this scale that we're talking about. Uh, another civilization could easily be a million years ahead of us. And so the next question is, is there a law of physics preventing a civilization millions of years ahead of us from making contact with us? Is there any brick wall that prevents an advanced civilization from making contact? Well, uh, Michelle, you're the physicist, and you mm -hmm. know that there isn't. There's That's no right. physics that prevents us. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be some physics that makes it very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, conventional physics, uh, if you use you know, rockets in the, the normal sense, the problem there is our rockets, of course, don't go fast enough, but, you know, they're more advanced. They can build better rockets. But when you get up to very high speeds, and you really do need speeds that are comparable to the speed of light if you want to get from one star to the next in less than a century, which sounds to me like something you might want to do no matter who you are. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and you've been listening to Exploration. And if you want to find out about my work and my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, then go to my website. It's mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about all I'm doing and find out about the God Equation, perhaps the greatest quest in the history of science, the search for a master equation which will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God in the words of Albert Einstein. So go to my website, mkaku.org.